0: They were listening to the concerns that we were putting across about people's jobs and people's livelihoods and people's businesses in our communities. And that they responded much quicker than I expected them to. But Rishi Sunak, I'll never forget him saying, This is not a time for ideology. And I just thought, It's just not a time for your ideology, mate. <laughs> it's a time for mine. <laughs> yeah, what you mean is not giving anybody anything or expecting people to just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Turns out not such a cracking ideology in a crisis.
1: Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity Term in June and you can find them via our website, our Soundcloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. This week we were very excited to host the Labour MP and frontbencher Jess Phillips, An MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015, she was a vocal critic of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party and his support for women. Jess has been called an ideal Labour leader and ran for the post earlier this year, but dropped out after advancing to the second stage of the contest. Instead, Keir Starmer was elected leader by a majority of the votes and he soon appointed her to the front bench as Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. In this episode, we discuss what she wants the government to do on domestic violence, how the Labour Party can turn itself into a party of government, and the balancing acts required of the modern left, including balancing the tribes, as she says, of working class voters who attempted away from the party in 2019 with metropolitan progressives. In her own case, we discuss the relationship between feminism and transgender rights, as well as balancing freedom of religion and of speech with education and societal needs. We also touched on her opinions on models of schooling in Britain after coronavirus. But I wanted to start by asking more broadly about what the roadmap back to power looked like for the Labour Party.
0: I mean, it's very, very early days. For me, it seems like it's a long roadmap that's going to need quite a lot of amending over the time. For the first time since I was elected, I feel confident in saying that we won't have another election for four years. So there is time to do that. I think that the Labour Party, first and foremost, the first step along the journey, and I think that certainly Keir Starmer did some of that yesterday when he appeared doing his own statement to the nation, is to remind people that we are there as a credible opposition who in the model of governance that people understand the idea that there is a group of people who have to make laws and make difficult decisions and there's plus and minus to these different approaches but certainly for some time since I was elected it has felt a little bit like the Labour Party was just there to complain rather than govern so I think that the very first step is a sort of exposure of the idea of credible governance and alternative government as opposed to quite rightly opposition just opposing things now there's lots of things that need to be opposed but you can do it in a manner that is as if you are planning for governance So I think that that is the first step, and I think that that is essentially a communications task and seeming like a team of people with different responsibilities, with different people who will lead on certain things in a coherent way that will start to form in people's minds. Because at the moment, I think that people just don't feel that there is an alternative. And one of the saddest things about a number of the elections, going back even to before I was elected, it moved on from being, you're all the same, so what's the point? that neither of you is an alternative to the other, to the idea that I'm politically homeless because I feel like I've only got one option and there's nowhere naturally for me to go. There is a huge amount of work to be done in the idea that you can be different, the distinct difference in ideology, in your plans for the future, in your vision for the future and what kind of country we want to live in, but that it is a credible alternative That's the work that has to be done to even build up the idea of being a credible alternative because lots of people don't even consider the Labour Party anymore and lots of those people who don't consider the Labour Party come from places where the
1: Labour Party has always been in power.
0: I think that's very true. I think
1: the Labour Party has always been sort of a coalition for change with lots of different groups. In 2019, at least, it felt like the Labour Party had to choose between progressives, metropolitan progressives in London, and then lots of working class people who were tempted away from the party. It must take time to heal that division. What do you think are the key ways in which it can be done? The division uh, between those two sorts of tribes. Well, actually, I think one
0: of the key ways to do that is to recognise that the reality is, is that people in Bolsover and people in Brighton actually fundamentally, in lots of cases, want the same thing. They want credible government that will look after their families and their communities and not forget about them and their desires. I think that politics in the past couple of years, and maybe it's exposure to a 24-hour news media over the years, and now social media, politics has slipped into a sort of regime of expecting to keep everybody happy. But in reality, the world is quite different. And so whilst very sort of progressive, liberal progressives of, you know, kindness towards migrant communities or LGBT rights. The vast majority of people in Crewe, the vast majority of people in Bolsover, the vast majority of people in Wigan. They're not un-progressive. They are not unprogressive. they do not hate gay people. They don't hate all (laughs) migrants. And the idea that you can't have a conversation, the idea that working class communities in our country aren't sitting around having argy-bargy around the dinner table with different generations every single day. I mean, my eyes could roll so far back into the back of my head for the conversations that I've had around the dinner table with some of my family. I mean, my father-in-law, God love him, he claims that he used to read the Daily Mail just because he liked the puzzles. Oh. But he 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 will sometimes say things, and I'm just like, oh for God's sake, man! This is ridiculous. You know, we don't then hate each other forever, or think that I'm forgetting about him or marginalising him. There is core values of wanting to be safe, wanting to be economically secure, wanting actually to be kind to others. If this carosis has taught us anything, it has shown us that that is what people value. This idea that people can't, regardless of where they come from, which sort of coalition of the Labour Party that they might come from, can't have the same hope for the future. It's just not
1: one that I recognise from having a foot in those camps. Do you think the things that do divide that coalition, those issues maybe have become more pertinent, sort of something like immigration, lots of people that have secure jobs and middle-class jobs, much more enthusiastic about, and then similarly yeah. with globalisation, the threats of losing a yeah. job, to so a manufacturing job. Do you think those kind of issues have become more challenging for the Labour Party to get over?
0: Yes, but they have. um, If you sort of allow them to, if if, if you say that there is only one way against all other things, you know, it's fine to have principles, but it's much easier to be comfortable with change if that change doesn't feel like it's threatening you. And actually, globalisation, one of the problems that we've had is that we didn't take the entire economy with it and for people who live in middle class places their lives aren't actually affected necessarily by government policy in the way that others might be or by sweeping changes as others might be i think that there has definitely been a problem where that hasn't been considered but it's not insurmountable i can tell you now that if you ask people to vote on a specific issue you will get a very different result so brexit is a good example then you will get if you ask them to vote in the round about their lives immigration will absolutely be a pitch point in something that's seemingly about immigration. Immigration won't necessarily be a pitch point in something that is much broader in like a general election, but it will be if you let it be. If you fall into the trap of just saying, oh well actually we we can't be saying this and we've got to show that we agree with this, that and the other. It's about having a proper conversation with people. People aren't stupid. There is definitely immigration will appear to affect people, even if they live nowhere near migrant communities who have less. There's absolutely no two ways about that. But there's lots
1: and lots of ways that we can talk about how they have less that is progressive. Do you think Keir Starmer is a not I don't want to say the right person, but someone that we can <laughs> will be able to make the case for debate and discussion and bring people together in that pursuit of...
0: Not on his own, no, is the answer to that question. But then I don't think anybody is the, you know... We we obsess at the moment in personality politics and certainly you could believe that the entire years of uh, Barack Obama's presidency, that he was the only person doing all the jobs. You know, this idea that there is some... Silver Bullet and uh, Jacinda Ardern similarly at the moment in New Zealand sort of godlike status of an individual, but nobody on their own could do that. And so what Keir Starmer will have to do is the what Keir Starmer can undoubtedly do. And I make no bones about saying that there is a huge amount of problems with the sentence that I'm about to say. Is that there is an element of the idea of the statesman talking about him making the statement that this is a person who lots of people will be able to look at and believe is a credible leader for all sorts of reasons that I would like to challenge (laughs) the status quo on because, you know, essentially he is a well-educated man in a suit. And unfortunately, whilst those are not really beneficial, they are also vital sometimes for people to be able to consider you to be credible. I wish it wasn't the case, but I'd fight the war I have rather than the war I want. But on his own, that wouldn't be enough. And so what he will have to do as the leader, and I think that in answer to your question, yes, he will be able to do, is get the right people doing the right things to bring some of that coalition building. Keir is brilliant at taking down Boris at the moment in that silent chamber, like acting like a courtroom drama. If you were picking teams in a school playground you pick him for that, you know, no two ways about that. And if you want somebody to go up and cuddle people in a community centre and sit and really talk about people's feelings and, and how things are feeling for people in areas, you, you might pick somebody else and
1: that's what he's going to have to do. And he will, I think that he will do that. Do you think the culture has changed quite significantly since he came in?
0: On its way to changing is what I would say, from my perspective, the culture of how the Labour Party functions as an opposition has completely changed, but I'm, I'm taking it from a very, very narrow perspective because as I am part of that now, a team of people and we are working together as a team, whereas I never, ever felt like that before, but then maybe that was happening in a different... And, and maybe there are people who'd say that they feel outside of the team now, certainly not by intention, but they might feel like that. But yes, to me, the culture is dramatically different, dramatically different. I wanted to
1: talk about last year when you had a, a row, I don't want to say row, but there was a row, um, about teaching... i always having a row with someone, so don't worry. Um, about teaching children about relationships and inclusion, including LGBTQ relationships. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how you think we could balance rights to religious freedom with the need to educate children to, I suppose, a standard fit for our society
0: the thing is is that in my opinion it doesn't affect people's religious freedom and if you have a a facet for your religion that is discriminatory then i'm afraid to say that the law of the land trumps that in my opinion i don't have any religion I, i believe very much in a sort of secular approach to the law which we don't actually have in this country There's all sorts of intertwining of, I think it's only the UK and Iran that have any level of theocracy in their legislature. Having said that, you've got to love a bit of Bishop in the House of Lords. They do some cracking things. (laughs) I, I find myself opposed to the idea of it being part of it, at the same time as liking some of the individuals and thinking that they do brilliant work. And that is, unfortunately, that is the pragmatism that comes with actually having responsibility to get things done. I don't think that teaching children about the world that they live in and the world that complies with the law in this country in any way hampers anyone's religious freedom. They can live their lives, make their choices at home exactly as they would want to. It does not state that anybody has any compulsion to behave in a certain way. It does not tell people that they, I mean, apart from, I suppose, not abusing people, not committing crimes. But that's the same of all citizenship education is about teaching children about the world that we live in. And you cannot deny that we live in a world, a diverse world where people are different. No one's saying that you have to then live your life like that or even talk about it at home, but in a state facility that is funded by the state that we enter into as parents when we send our children to school for children not to learn. It's like saying that children shouldn't learn about evolution. This is the world as we experience it. But the vast majority of people, which I think you can potentially see by the number of people, especially from the community that that row was about. If you were to look at the statistics around voting in my constituency, you would see that that row and the idea that I was damning people's religious freedom, the vast majority of people in my constituency who would be considered to be from that community went out and voted Labour and voted for me in the election that followed it. So when I had that row, it was not with the people from a certain religion in my
1: constituency. It was with a bigot. An individual bigot. I suppose that probably informs your, your response to my next question about sort of the right for them to protest these things, even if they're not harming anyone else. I don't know the specifics of the situation. but there's a... yeah, so
0: I think that people have every right to protest where they're not causing harm. In this instance, the protest was moved away from the school by law. Not me, but they went to court to move it away from the school because it was perceived to be causing harm to the children going in and out of the school, to the staff in the school. And so I think that people have every right to process, but freedom of speech, it's not there to defend the right to harm people with your words. (laughs) People often mistake the
1: idea of freedom of speech as being like, you can say anything, but you can't. (laughs) Sticking with education, but for universities, These universities don't have much external oversight, and particularly for women and students with disabilities, they do feel let down in many respects by how they are treated by these universities. What other kind of ways do you think these universities can be encouraged or made even to tackle their failings more broadly, but also with particular reference to women and those with disabilities at those universities? I don't think encouraging works
0: i think that people often have to be made to do something in order certainly when you're talking about complex issues of equality the triumph of hope over experience tells me that unless you make something a law in lots of cases it just won't happen a law or a, uh, a requirement through some sort of statutory body now i have come ac- up against uh and funnily enough i'm gonna be doing some campaigning around universities specifically in their uh, how they handle sexual harassment and sexual violence on campus and there's been a couple of really bad and high profile cases not about oxford actually i think it was cambridge was the one that taught us media did some work around but also i think was it warwick where the people were um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, in my opinion there is a public equality duty that all public bodies are meant to live by and I think that there needs to be far more robust regulatory framework to make sure that organisations are doing that and there needs to be public duties certainly put on public bodies now universities unfortunately I mean when I went to university and certainly when my parents went to university They were largely state-funded organisations. Obviously, we, we live in a different framework now for how universities operate and are funded. However, they still receive government funding and finance. I think that it would be difficult to argue that they didn't have a public duty element to them and weren't public bodies to some degree. I think that there needs to be far greater enforcement of the public sector equality duty on all organisations done maybe through the EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. But at the moment, I would say that they currently, they would argue that it would be very difficult for them to do that across the board because of resources. But I would say that universities should be essentially, not just universities, but all organisations essentially, sort of, there should be able to be a scheme of investigating into and inspections. Inspection. <laughs> inspection, I couldn't think of the word inspection. Uh, that you know that there there is a need to inspect the regimes with regard to equality. Now, of course, the equality uh, and this was def- definitely gets said pretty much every year on A-level results day about Oxford and Cambridge. The equality duty currently doesn't include anything to do with class. <laughs> you know, I think that the potential to improve some of our institutions and how they represent people from different backgrounds that aren't currently covered by the equality act it doesn't currently cover it was due to but it had to be pushed through quickly before the labor party lost the election in 2010 so i think that there is definitely stuff that universities and i know that i was and so Cambridge I actually invest quite a lot in trying very hard to go out into, I know because they came to schools when I was a kid, in areas like where I grew up to try and encourage people to put themselves forward. In fact, I went to Oxford when I was about like 16. We went and stayed there for a week to look at how law the law works, try and encourage people from where I live to take law at Oxford. I didn't do that. But, um, so I know that there is quite a lot of schemes that they try and do, but there is still a massive class disparity between public schools and state schools in those institutions that
1: needs something done about it. And it's not just Oxford; it's all of those sort of elite institutions. I think last year was the first year that it became a majority of new students. Yes, I think it was, wasn't it? But do you know, 8%
0: of the population go to private schools, so is it seven? I think so. Yeah, seven. So 7% of the population. Now, far be it from me to make policy on the hoof on this, uh, on this, but if you were to have a quota system, you could say that only 7% of intake should come from that section of society. But I have literally listened to some of my colleagues who went to Eton, for example, not Labour Party colleagues, I hasten to add, saying that, you know, it's really unfair that, their kids and stuff can't get into eating anymore because they might not be clever enough. And I was just like, yes, that does seem deeply,
1: deeply unfair. You can't really get across sarcasm on a podcast. <laughs> um, do you think, I know sort of the, uh, the alternative to just quotas and that kind of thing is bringing state schools up to the standard of private schools. I mean, obviously probably you should expect private schools to be better if they've got more resources and smaller classes. Yeah.
0: I don't think private schools are better, actually. I think that some of the best teaching I've ever seen is in some of the hardest schools that are, you know, might not get perfect results. Of course, the argument should be, well, it should be a level playing field. But if, A, if you select your pupils based on some... Metric that doesn't include everybody, not only do you get the sort of cream of the crop when there's sort of people who won't necessarily have horrendous situations going on that mean it's harder for them to learn, but also you don't have a proper mix in the state school system where, you know, there's huge amounts of work gone into the idea of the sort of beneficial mixed environment where middle class kids are in school with kids from uh, more working class backgrounds. Of course, I think that all. You know, I, I come from Birmingham where we have the grammar school system still, and I chose as a parent and it was not based on my politics at all. I chose for my sons to go to the local comprehensive school because I believe it to be a better school and I wanted them to be in that environment because it is a very, very mixed environment, mixed in every single way that you can imagine. And I chose that because it is an outstanding school. Now, if everybody had a school like my son's school, near enough to their house that they could get in, and of course selection happens through the back door because middle-class people move near good schools because they're able to do that. The idea that we need to make sure that every local area has absolutely outstanding schools has always got to be the priority of any, frankly, any government, but certainly any Labour government. It has to be about making sure that there is a good comprehensive school for every single child to go to in every single neighbourhood even in places where you have that in london the london challenge where the schools were massively over the 1990s vastly improved still people will choose to send their kids to private school because essentially it also games the system it isn't just about what you're learning at school or how much resources you have or whether you have a big green space to run around in, which all will make your outcomes better. But it isn't just about that. It is about the connections that you get, the people that you're amongst, the kind of connections that, that, that those networks. So it doesn't matter if there was an outstanding state school on literally every street, some people will always opt out because that system of connection and networking carries on.
1: What do you think about the idea of splitting up students based on their ability, like academies and grammars and an 11 plus test or something?
0: I'm against it personally like I say I think that children thrive better in a mixed environment and it's very very easy for me to say that as a politician although I made that decision for my own children so I'm saying it also as a parent and every parent makes the decision based on what they believe to be best for their own child and no government and no politician should ever criticize that individual choice that a parent makes to do the best for their child but as a politician it's my responsibility to make sure that you do the best for every child and that everybody's children have the same chance. I have to say, I think that the selection process that doesn't have counterbalance in it to ensure that it is representative will always favour one group of people over another, and you will always then remove their clever kids who might have gone to the local school and made that environment better and benefited from that environment as well you will always clean them off and that's the system the school system in birmingham is it stands to reason that that's what happens i say i went to the grammar school and also i know how it makes people feel who didn't go to the grammar school and that sort of idea that you're not good enough if you don't pass your 11 plus i think we're starting to break it but when i was a kid when i went to school that was a very real thing. Me and my brother went to the grammar school and two of my brothers didn't. And you know what? You can see it in their attitude towards education.
1: I also wanted to, we've avoided this so far, but I wanted to ask about coronavirus, obviously. Oh, yeah. And I was quite interested to see when Jeremy Corbyn came out, one of the last times the media was interested in him, really. And He said the government response, spending lots of money, vindicated his 2019 policies. Do you think he's right in that? Do you think Britons will have a heart for radical change when the pandemic is behind us? I mean, yes and no.
0: Yes, I think that Britons will have... uh, If you'd asked me this in the first three weeks of the coronavirus pandemic, my answer would have been more emphatic about how I think that Britain will feel afterwards. But public opinion and people's emotions, they change over time. In the very beginning, before people had got sort of more used to this new normal and... I think that the idea that you could respond to the economic downturn that will inevitably come with austerity, it would have been political suicide. So I think that people are getting more used to the idea of getting back to normal and what does that look like? And maybe we can't all have everything that we would want and that rhetoric will come back a little bit more. Um, But as for whether Jeremy Corbyn was right, I'd say that I think in the wash up of coronavirus, what will be made clear is that austerity definitely damaged our ability to cope with the crisis and that had we invested more in the preparatory work and in the public services that we needed so quickly, so fast, and with such vigour, that we potentially, and you'll never be able to say, but potentially the death toll could have been different. I don't, I mean, it will, you will never be able to prove that. But I think that the argument that sort of an austerity that did not prepare, and there's quite a lot of evidence suggesting that reserves of PPE were dwindled One thing that I think will come out of it that is good is a focus on social care and care homes. And and this isn't necessarily a political point because nobody has grasped this uh, in the way that they should have, is what does an ageing population and good care look like for everybody is, I think, being writ large now in this crisis.
1: What do you think are some of the solutions? I mean, demographic change is is a challenge that countries all over the world are facing. Is it just sort of chucking money at it or are there different ways to... Well, you've got to collect money before
0: you chuck it. And so there is going to have to be a genuine consensus building about what we would all want, what we could all afford, and how can we make sure that is the case for everybody. Because I still think that most people think that the idea that people have to sell their homes in order to get care seems unfair but then also the idea that taxing young people much much more to pay for older people to have care now because we've we've built up this crisis in the system we haven't dealt with it over a period of time so there needs to be an injection also seems you know when the older generation is asset rich while the younger generation is asset poor there is lots and lots of different elements to this that will need to be thought out but there needs to be a genuine consensus about the idea that if we want good decent care provided by people paid for well and respected that we're going to have to pay for that somehow i don't just think it's just money and resource i think it is I keep hearing this, hear it again and again. I heard it yesterday on the news about people talking about low-skilled work and the example they were talking about was bus driver, but I couldn't drive a bus. I mean, I crash my car when it's tiny on a regular basis. So the idea that, you know, I wouldn't be backing into the bollard every single time I tried to move it out. The idea of people's skill being linked to their wage and in care work it's more so than anything. Their legal advocates they're nurses they have medical training they have skills beyond anything that we could imagine so we have got to get away from this idea that it is not a skilled job and I think that that is as important as the idea of throwing I'm going to say throwing money as if like we're just throwing money at it investing in that is deeply important. So we have to change our mindset about the idea that those who care for, and they're largely women, and as we found out largely BME communities, that those who care for our children and family members as they get older or get sicker, we have got to have a complete change of view about how valuable that work is to us as a nation.
1: I think that's a perception that will, there'll definitely be a discussion about that and it's something lots of people will believe in coming out of this Pandemic, the people with high value key, key workers is the phrase. Yeah. How do you think that will change government policy? How do you think they'll be treated in the aftermath?
0: I mean, look, again, it's the triumph of hope over experience. Do I think that they're going to get a massive big pay settlement all of a sudden? No, I don't. I think that they'll have tribute paid to them a huge amount. Well, do you know what? I can't pay the bills with tribute. Tribute makes no difference to a care worker. And most people in key worker positions. Actually, whilst I think that pay settlements, certainly when you're talking about nursing care and social care, definitely needs to be considered, but most key workers, whether they're teachers, doctors, nurses, bus drivers, most people would actually just be arguing for the system to be better. Most teachers would say, your pay settlement that you, you want to give me, whilst they, they might want that and think that it's the right thing to do, they spend a lot of their money Funding the bloody paper and the pencils in kids' schools, a broader idea of investment in our public services is going to be what will hopefully come out of it. But can you, I mean, I can't imagine Rishi Sunak is going to come out and be like, Do you know what? We need to have, you know, at least a bare minimum £10 an hour minimum wage for social care workers who work night shift. I mean, I just can't, can't see that that's going to happen.
1: I was really surprised to see him extend the furlough scheme all the way to October. Yeah, me
0: too. I have to say, I was a bit shocked. (laughs) Uh,
1: My husband is furloughed at the
0: moment, um, although he's due to go back to work uh, much, much, much sooner than October. But I was surprised about the October element. But there is no choice, really, if you actually think about it, because without it, there is a cliff edge. There will just be a huge cliff edge that people will drop off and we'll have, you know,
1: longer dole cues than I've known at any yeah. point in my life. What ways do you think the government has responded well? Where, where are the positives to the response to the pandemic?
0: Oh, I mean, there are definitely positives. Rishi Sunak, uh, very, very, very early on, when we were like, you know, I was having businesses walking into my office. i have been a sort of like parade of shops and the hairdresser and a calf and, and the news agents. And people coming in saying, well, you know, they're saying we can't open, but what are we going to do? So we were taking that, and he, you know, I, I do feel like, and it's, it makes me really worried about the way Parliament is running at the moment. Is that whilst we were all squashed into a room, we were all saying, "Hang on, you've got to do this," not just from the Labour side, from the Conservative side as well. That that I did feel that actually in the early days they were listening to the concerns that we were putting across about people's jobs and people's livelihoods and people's businesses in our communities, and that they responded much quicker than I expected them to. But Rishi Sunak, I'll never forget him saying, "This is not a time for ideology," and I I just thought it's just not a time for your ideology mate. <laughs> it's a time for mine <laughs> yeah what you mean is not giving anybody anything or expecting people to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps turns out not such a cracking ideology in a crisis <laughs> but it was they responded very well to certainly that initial problem how those schemes then went on to work in practice is mixed but the initial response economically i think it gave probable confidence to the system more generally um other things that have they have done well gosh with regard to and there's how this has worked in practice because all of those big new hospitals that they have built do seem to be empty but the need not to let the nhs fall over i think is something that we could all absolutely get behind throughout but you know
1: there's millions of things that have
0: gone
1: wrong a couple of days ago the government released one of its sage reports you know there was lots of in the news about how lots of it was redacted when it comes to an inquest into how it was dealt with do you think that'll be hugely thought over? how i suppose responsible do you think the government will be in evaluating its own response
0: there there will inevitably be some sort of inquiry uh, especially as we seem to be tracking some of the worst results in the world I don't cut the government any slack for some of the things that they have got wrong. PPE has been a disaster. Testing is a right old mess. But there is no perfect thing that could have happened. And anyone in politics who claims that they are perfection and that all their ideas would have saved everything is not true, actually. Um, It's not realistic. But what we will start to see, if I know anything about politics and uh, specifically the current administration uh, that we have, we will start to see a huge amount of deflection for decisions made. Because ultimately we don't live in a political environment where what I just said is accepted. You have to be either a hero or you belong in the bin. And that's not the world we actually live in. Most people exist somewhere in the middle. Because there will be this desire to lay blame rather than understanding what we did wrong in order to make it better for any future occurrences you will start to get the rhetoric of who was to blame and there will be a lot of pushing I think that onto the science the scientists we already saw that story you know rightly or wrongly about the scientist who went to who had his partner around to stay with him seemed like a much bigger story on the day that we surpassed the death rate in any other European country but there will be a huge amount of blame rather than learning so that's the way politics is at the moment it has to be way or another and that's a shame because in reality even if the government had done it you know everything right still some things would have gone wrong but they need to be held account for the things that went so badly wrong but for the sake of getting them right in the future rather than just being able
1: to punch them in the face yeah. with it the early stages of the pandemic were quite difficult for labour as well obviously it was the the leadership election. But do you think the absence of a strong coherent vocal opposition contributed a bit to the difficulties of the response? I mean potentially
0: again I should imagine that will all come out in the wash but I think in the beginning it was it was very very difficult. However where having a really strong Labour opposition would have made a difference was the idea of the lockdown happening sooner. I think that in those early days like I say from all sides of the house there were members of parliament saying, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And and I think that that aided the response. And that's why I worry deeply about parliament at the moment, because I don't feel that there is that opportunity at the moment, because of the way that parliament is sitting. And I, I feel very, very, very worried very limited time for questions and proper debate. Coming from people's Zoom conferences, I really worry that that time to properly go over the different schemes and things that
1: Parliament had when this began is just not there anymore. I think it's quite, it's, I mean you touched on this a bit, but it is really difficult for the opposition to strike the right tone in how they hold the government to account. Do you think Keir Starmer's has done a good job of getting it right in that respect?
0: It is incredibly hard and he's, uh, I don't think anyone would say he was a natural brawler. Not like me, I love a row. But I think that he has. But like I say, I think the sort of team effort of others less pulling punches is helpful. But I don't think that he has actually pulled that many punches. I think in reality, he has pointed out where things have gone wrong. And what you have to do at the moment and what you should do all the time if, you know, real politics wasn't actually a thing is that your opposition should have an outcome that is other than political. Your opposition should be for an end goal for the people of your country. And so I don't think he has pulled those punches. Where he felt there was a problem with the testing, he called it out. Where he felt there was a problem with PPE, called it out. The massive problem in care homes, there have been no punches pulled on that. At the same time as focusing on the fact that we're saying it to make it better. And I think that maybe the country, we have to go on a journey with the country because things have been so divisive for so long that we have to face
1: an outcome that is better for our country rather than better for our political party is important. Your recent promotion will see you focus your work on domestic abuse and safeguarding. I was wondering what your perspective was on how well, how successfully the government has helped victims of domestic abuse and mitigated the issue, particularly during the lockdown
0: not very well I'm afraid and I don't feel that I've pulled my punches in saying that because I, I went from a transition of being a back in the crisis to being a front venture and I don't think my tone has changed. I think that they didn't. And if I were being completely fair, there's a huge amount going on, but I don't think that they properly considered the effect of lockdown on not just victims of domestic violence, but lots of different vulnerable groups. And whilst you can never eliminate it and no one should expect the response to have been perfect, I don't think there was anywhere near quick enough mitigation put in place for people whose risk was about to increase massively, whether that's children who live with abusive families or children online much more and so exposed to more risk in that regard, or victims of violence living with their perpetrators.
1: What are the kind of things that the government should be be looking at to do? There needs to be a much, much better
0: and connected government strategy on different departments working together to both resource and support victims of domestic abuse because it's very it can be very piecemeal a little bit of a project here because something's happened or a little bit like you know you see what happened in south yorkshire and rochdale and stuff around the grooming and, and the sexual exploitation you'll get a sudden flurry of funding and activity because something has come to light rather than a proper long term Strategy and plan to increase the safety of the citizens in our country. Now, a- any politician will tell you that the first line of defence of any government, that the first job is to keep our citizens safe. And what that means to most people in politics, and in fact, if you were to say it to most people in the country, it's the idea of a person in uniform guarding our borders and police on our streets, keeping our communities safe. the vast majority of crime and risk exists in people's homes and the idea of keeping our country safe and properly having a proper long term view about how our health services, how our education, how our police, how they properly respond to domestic abuse. And that should have happened in the idea of lockdown, but it should happen much more broadly because it's incredibly piecemeal and you'll get a little law change here and you'll get a few things here. It's an epidemic Domestic abuse and violence against women and children it is an epidemic in our country and it kills, you know, more people than fire. You know, it's it needs proper scrutiny and proper concern and proper investment.
1: What well, would having a long-term plan strategy to tackle domestic abuse, what would that look like on the ground to people that are victims that are, are looking to the government for help?
0: It would look like when they looked for help, it was there and it would look like whichever service, It looks like specialist services available while universal services know how to deal with it. So that if you come forward in a school, if you come forward at your doctors, if you come forward to your local council housing office, that there is a proper approach where there is somewhere to go. But the vast majority of victims on the ground come forward, I mean, numerous times before... They actually find a pathway through to survival. But it also needs to look like much, much more robust criminal justice system that actually treats this crime for what it is. Not just domestic abuse, but rape and sexual violence. It's still vanishingly rare that people get convictions and vanishingly rare in those cases, those convictions anywhere near have a sentence that meets the harm that can be done in those circumstances. But it also looks like prevention. It looks like culture change and educating people at every layer of society about this thing that most people would say was bad, but have very little understanding of
1: exactly how bad it is and how prevalent one of the other things I wanted to touch on was transgender rights. And I was wondering how you reconcile the areas where your quite justified feminism clashes with transgender rights. And The thing uh, is,
0: I don't think it has to clash with them. I, don't, I wish that it didn't clash with them. And I wish that the whole conversation around transgender rights... Well, I just, think, I just wish that we weren't in the place that we are currently in. I don't think one person's rights trump another's. And I think that there is room enough for everybody to have enough. And that people, transgender people, I was on the original scrutiny committee that made some of the recommendations that have been controversial. I stand by those recommendations. But like any law change, it has to be done very carefully to make sure that it doesn't have unintended consequences. That is the same for those laws as much as any other. Look, I, I think that women's spaces... And women's safety and the need to feel that that isn't compromised is something that I've dedicated my life to fighting for. Um, And I will continue to do that. But as somebody who ran a service that had transgender people in it that posed no threat, I think that there is a way through this. But I wouldn't want to see sex based rights
1: be removed from the Equality Act because I think sex based rights are deeply important. Do you think it's possible to be and kind a of, more permissive I suppose more accessible for self-identification while still maintaining those women's places and the security that uh, we need to offer vulnerable people
0: i mean i I think that we've got to find a a way for that to happen because the current system of transitioning you know the idea that self-id that one day you know i can just say well i'm a man tomorrow that's not good enough and that's not what we should be seeking to do but the current system where people have to live in role now i am gender critical if you will. So I don't know how I would live in role as a man. Would I get a hammer and put up some pictures? Do I have to, I don't know, drink lager and wear my hair short? And, you know, these are all things that I have done in my life. And I'm not a man, I'm a woman. The idea that you can live in role that is somehow means man, it just seems ridiculous to me that. So I think that, you know, that needs to be upgraded. But I think that what I'm anxious about in self-id is smaller organizations smaller women's organizations that don't have you know people don't have rafts and lawyers if somebody and it happens all the time i work for a small women's organization where if you would put in a job advert that you you had to be a woman to work there you would inevitably get men who would try and take legal action against you even though it's clearly in the law what I don't want is lots and lots of legal challenges being made when people have made a decision based on risk. And there's all sorts of reasons why you might turn somebody away from a refuge, if we were talking about refuge. And that's often got absolutely nothing to do with how you might identify. There's all sorts of risk reasons. I think there's a way through. I think that there is a way through. And the tone of
1: the debate needs to be calmed. You must have been glad to see Lisa and Andy promoted to one of the four great officers of state as I think. I was. How important is it to have women represented right at the highest levels not quite the highest but towards the top of politics? It's
0: massively important women's representation at the top matters because when women have power
1: they change
0: the situation for women in the country the fundamental fact proven out by all sorts of different evidence very very important not just because I want it I want it so that it's better for everybody in the country I also just want it.
1: Why do you think Labour never has had a female leader?
0: Genuinely, because Labour women are much less inclined to benefit the status quo than Conservative women, and Labour women tend to be radical in other ways. and um, would genuinely change the power shift. I think it has been easier for that reason for the Conservatives to have done it, not because they're massive feminists or really. anything. But You know, like all organisations, the Labour Party has an element of within its institution that it's a bit sexist.